he's on the run, this outcast, this king, he's an outlaw, all over the walls of post offices from Gibeah to Bethlehem, his face is on the most wanted posters. He's a fugitive, and he's hungry, no weapons, just the clothes that were on his back, the clothes that he was wearing when he made his escape from the strange royal rage. See, the other king wants him dead. Jealousy, paranoia, bitterness, pride, madness, they all swirled and writhed in the once golden boy, the handsome and tall king Saul. Now, the passage before us today is no doubt not as famous as the passage an encounter with Goliath. And the passage today is notoriously difficult to interpret, uh, as we will see. And it's also terribly grisly. In its verses lurk a consummate villain, a diabolical mass murderer. Yet in its verses, there's not only a stream of blood, but there are streams of mercy that flow, as we will see. But here's the good thing, we're not left alone to figure this text out, for Jesus himself brought the story to the minds of his people. So, how do we make sense of this bizarre story? Remember, by the way, if, if, if you're, you've been here or if you're new, if you're a first-time visitor or a guest, the point of the series is to point us to how Jesus is the point of all these stories, okay? So the point of King David is to point us to the true king, Jesus, and we're going to see that today as we peer beneath the skin of these verses, we're going to see how it points us to Jesus. So that said, back to the king on the run, making his way south through the hills and the fields. David has escaped the murderous King Saul. He's made his way to a town called Nob. It's the town where the priests live. It's, it's the town where the tabernacle is. It's Priestville. And this priestville is somewhere near Jerusalem. It's south of Gibeah, where Saul stews in his violent jealousy. And David's savvy. David is savvy. He flees to a place of refuge. He flees to the place where the tabernacle is. He flees to a place where he knows the priest. It's a wise move, and it is a likely location for him to pick up some field rations and some help. Now, when he shows up, Ahimelech, the priest, uh, his name, by the way, Ahimelech, uh, means um, my brother is, is the king. This priest named Ahimelech, he's a bit worried. He's no dummy. David's alone. He's hot and he's sweaty, and the, the dust of the field is across his forehead. Something seems off. David's there without any gear, no posse, right? no entourage. Something's up. Plus, Ahimelech has heard whisperings, rumblings, rumors that there's some tension growing between Saul and this popular warrior poet who has quite the following at this point. So, trembling, Ahimelech braces for trouble and he asks, Why are you here? What's going on? And David says here in verse 2, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. <laughs> Already we're like, wait a minute, what is, what is happening? Because it appears that David has just lied to the priest, doesn't it? 
Saul has not charged David with a secret mission. David is running from a homicidal king. And has he truly made an appointment to meet with the young men? Who knows at this point? What do we believe? David says, help me out. I'm in need. Can you give me some field rations for myself and the men and the mission that we are on? So again, what's, what's going on here? David is in need of food, that's clear. But it seems he's playing fast and loose with, with the truth. And then it gets even murkier. Look at verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no co- common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. What is this? Well, Ahimelech's like, I don't have any bread except for the bread that is uh, offering or sacrifice that is put out on every Sabbath that only the priests can eat, according to Leviticus 24. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what, what's called the showbread or the, the lechem hapanim. Um, that means the, the bread of the presence. Uh, and and here, here's a picture of what it would have looked like. See, in the temple, in the tabernacle, before the holies, the holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the room before that, there was a massive lampstand. Uh, we know it as a menorah. But a menorah was basically a huge, golden, burning, glowing tree with seven lights on it. And before that burning tree was a golden table on the other side of the room that had 12 pieces of bread, kind of like flat bread, that were stacked in two stacks of six. There was 12 pieces of them. Now, what is this about? Well, the idea was every Sabbath, the priests would bake new bread, and they would put these 12 pieces down, stack them in stacks of 12, or 6, so there's 12 total, and then they could eat the the stale bread that had been sitting out all week. Like, yay, it's good to be a priest, right? Um, Stale wonder bread, fantastic. But what's the point of this? Well, the point is symbolic. The bread, right, how many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes of Israel. So you have these 12 pieces of bread in the presence of this glowing, burning, radiant tree with the number seven as the number of perfection. So there in the presence of God are his people basking in his glory. All right? So so do you see the, the symbolic nature of this? The presence of God's glory shining on his people. Now again, only the priests could eat this. So Ahimelech says, look, all I have is last week's bread of presence. By the way, it's called the bread of presence, um, hapanim, because that means the faces, the bread of the faces. In other words, the, the faces of God's people are shining in the face, the glory of who God is. They are in union and relationship. It's beautiful imagery. So Ahimelech says, you can have the bread if you have consecrated your men, that means they've set aside sexual relationship uh, with women uh, for the time being because they're dedicated on a mission to God and the king. And David says, yep, yep, that's, that's what we do. Like when we go on mission, we do that. And especially since we're on the special mission, totally consecrated. Give me the food. Right? All good. David gets the bread. 
Now listen, like, there is no way we are going to unwind all the ethical questions, complications, and implications of this text today. That's, we're not going to do it. But what we do need to see here is that this priest is merciful to David, who is needy and desperate. Rather than erring on the side of strict law-keeping, he is merciful to David. Mercy over strict severity. Now, if that brings up questions for you, well, I'm, I have so many questions, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, so many questions. I need to spend a lot more time meditating on this passage for sure. But let's let the story keep pointing us to the great point. Now, it's here that a dark shadow falls across the passage. It's here that a snake slithers into the verses. Look at verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Hold on to this, okay? Doeg the Edomite skulking in the shadows. We'll come back. Well, now, David has his rations, but he still has no weapons, so he has another ask, verses 8 and 9. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. So you see, by the way, right, that Ahimelech is not just dealing with anyone. He's talking to David. He knows David. They have had interactions on a number of occasions. This is the guy who fought the, the serpent Goliath in the name of Yahweh and won. And the very sword that David used to slay Goliath is there in the temple. And you know what this means, right? This is great. Why is the sword in the temple? Well, it used to be in David's hand, right? But this is so great. The sword is in the temple and, and not in David's house on his hearth in a glass case as a souvenir. Why? Because David knows who the battle belongs to. David knows who, the, who won the battle. It wasn't the sword that won the battle. It was Yahweh who won the battle. So he gives up his souvenir. And instead of saying, look how awesome I am. Look at my military prowess and ability to take down a big baddie as like the souvenir on his, his heart. He says like, no, no. That goes to the, the Lord. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. David has a God-saturated consciousness. It's awesome. Well, David does take the sword he takes a sword that he took from the hand of God's enemy and he will then now use it against God's enemy on his way from outcast refugee to sitting on the throne of Israel. <clears throat> so off David runs, right? Back into the hills and the fields with five loaves of wonder bread and a sword of like epic proportions. Off he goes. But there's more to the story. It's not where it ends. There's that ominous doeg bit, that guy slinking in the shadows. It leaves us wondering. It's brilliantly written. So let's turn now to 1 Samuel 22. Warning, the story is about to get a bit rough. 1 Samuel 22, pick up at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting 
at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all the servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood with him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. <laughs> Saul, 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 Saul. He's lounging under his favorite tree in self-importance, playing the victim while twirling about a spear in this volatile insecurity. And he goes into his monologue, sniveling. No one's for me. Remember, they're all around him in this big circle. Everyone's attending to him. No one's for me. You all don't care about me. No one feels bad for me. No one feels sorry for me. Remember, I am the one who can give you fields. I can give you a new house. I can give you stuff, money, tax breaks. I can give it to you all. And nobody told me my son is on Team David. Where are you guys at? Where are you at? Right here, by this tree, the serpent slithers in again. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servant of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. And you know what? He even gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Doeg sees his opportunity. He's an opportunist. He's going to make the power grab. He's going to worm his way into the favor of the paranoid king. He's crafty. Excuse me, most honorable and wonderful, tall, dark, and handsome King Saul. I have something for you. I saw David at the tabernacle, and the priest aided and abetted your enemy. He inquired to the Lord for him. He gave him the food, the bread. He gave him a weapon. It sounds pretty treasonous to me, Saul. What an oily little self-serving goblin. Oh. Anyway, his words are enough to light the fuse of the paranoid Saul. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Pause. Uh Uh-oh. This is not going so well for Ahimelech. This is not good. Ahimelech, who was not conspiring against Saul was only trying to be merciful to someone he thought was on the king's business. It made total sense. Look at verse 14. Look at his defense. And then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? 
who's the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? In other words, of course I would help. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn, kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They all back up. They're like, no, we're good. And at this point in the movie soundtrack, you know, the pitch rises. I'm sure like the dissonant violins come in. The scene's filled with terrible tension. And the enraged king turns to Doeg. Verse 18. You... Turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. In two short verses, horrendous evil is unleashed. Doeg launches into a killing spree, slaughtering 85 priests. They're white linen ephods, no longer white, but bathed in blood. And then off to the city of Nob, where he takes the violence up an octave. And everyone in the town is slaughtered, men and women, children, all the animals. It's horrific. It's just horrific. If you just stop to think about what happened, it's mind-bending. Well, this horrific news gets to David. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew it. I knew it. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. You can just hear the emotion in his voice. It's a short sentence, but it is loaded. And then he says this. He says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. The word means to guard or you will be re- I will be responsible for you. So look, one of the priest's sons lives. He makes his way to David, and I can't imagine through the traumatized state he was in, he, he tells this terrible tale, right? So he tells this terrible tale. He's the lone survivor. And David's cut to the core. He's like, I knew it! I saw Doeg there. It's my fault. Because of me, all the priests are dead, and the town is gone. He, notice this, though. What is David, what is David doing? He's taking responsibility. This is the opposite of Saul, who's like the the master blame shifter, who throws blame every which way. David takes responsibility. He is a chronic responsibility taker. This is on me. This is on me. And then he takes action. He grants mercy to the lone priest. Stay with me. I will protect you. I will be for you. I will guard your life. 
See, here's what happened. Ahimelech had mercy on David, a wearying and fleeing David, and David has mercy on a weary and fleeing Abiathar. It's a rough story. Rough story. Happy day at church this morning. It's complicated. The messy ethics of it all. It, again, it's mind-bending. So what do we do with this? Well, we don't just get disheartened because David, who is our hero, enters into some kind of dubious interaction and that leads to all sorts of deaths. That's not what we do. Again, we let this story be a signpost to Jesus. Now, quick question before I make some connections here. Doeg. Doeg was a what? An Edomite. Doeg was an Edomite. Our text calls attention to that a number of times. Doeg was an Edomite. Again, hold on to that. Fast forward with me now, about a thousand years. Fast forward from 1 Samuel 21 to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Because in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we have another outcast king who is on the move, and he and his men are hungry. Let's read it. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he, Jesus, said to them, Have you not read? What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are are guiltless? In other words, they work on the Sabbath, but it's not a problem, even though they work on the Sabbath. And if you, oh, excuse me, um, and I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Man, Jesus is awesome. Jesus has just been going about the land, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, healing the sick, teaching, loving the lost, gathering the broken and lonely around him, this ragtag crew of apprentices. They're not the elites. They're not the holders of the power positions. They are the marginalized. And there they are, following this king on mission, walking through the fields, and they're hungry. And so as they walk along, they grab some grain, rub it between their hands, and they get some of the little grain, and then they actually eat it. Well, they're being watched, right? They're being hunted. By who? The Pharisees, right? The religious leaders of Israel. The observant Religious class, the leaders of the people. Now, it's almost comical in my, in my mind. I see them, Jesus and his disciples, they're like, oh, like I could go for a sub sandwich, but we got this grain. So they grab it and do this, and then like up, pop from the fields like whack-a-mole, like the Pharisees. Aha! Like, it just, it seems just so comical and absurd in my, in my brain. We got you. We knew you were doing unlawful things, and now we have you. Your hand's in the cookie jar, right? But they had become the watchdogs of the law. Um, and not, not in the, the good sense. Um, because the, the law um, was given from God. But then the religious leaders added on to that. 
what was called the oral law or the mission. They're like, here's what God said, and now we're really going to make sure you don't break it, so we're going to stack all this stuff on top of it. They had 39 added regulations about what you could not do on the Sabbath. 39 extra categories that aren't in the scriptures that they added on top, making the Sabbath in anxiety, walk on eggshells kind of day versus a day of joy, rest and peace. So they accused Jesus of doing something unlawful, but he didn't. I mean, what he's doing is completely fine. He's gleaning in the fields. In fact, the law gave provision. If you're walking through fields and you're hungry, you can glean some. So Jesus didn't do anything wrong. So here's what Jesus does. He gives them a little talking to you from 1 Samuel 21, 22. Guys, don't you know your own scriptures? Have you never read 1 Samuel 21? Don't you know that David, the anointed king, when he was hungry, when he was on the run, grabbed some bread from the temple, when he was desperate, when he was hungry? And by the way, don't you know that the priests themselves... They're not doing anything wrong by working on the Sabbath because that is their job, to, to work on the Sabbath. And by the way, the, the Sabbath was made for man, to bless man. And, and look, guys, if you don't condemn David for something that still seems a little, like, shady, if you don't condemn him for doing that, yet you condemn me for doing something that is completely within the bounds of the law, like, it, it, it's inconsistent, it's, it's incoherent. If you don't condemn the priest for working on the Sabbath because they're doing what they're called to do, then why do you condemn me for I am the priest and this Sabbath is mine? And then he drops this theological bombshell on them. Basically he says, look, if you're not catching on to what I'm saying, I am the Son of Man, God in the flesh, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. That means I get to tell you what the Sabbath is for and who does what. And if you understand the scriptures, you would know that what the Heavenly Father wants is not some cold, pedantic, like, gig you on minutiae details. He wants a heart of mercy, and he wants a heart of love, not, not exacting religious attitudes. He quotes Isaiah 6, 6, for I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. He says, you are meant, as the religious leaders, you are meant to be those who give the bread of life. The bread of life, mercy to those in need. But you go around with your swords of self-righteousness, whacking at everyone, trying to cut them down. Again, Jesus has not broken the law. He, said, he, he calls himself the, the guiltless, the innocent. Like, why, why are you calling me guilty? I'm, I'm completely innocent. In fact, I'm fulfilling the law. I'm not flouting it. Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. So what we need to see is this. Jesus is a grace-dispensing, mercy-giving priest a true high priest, that is for the flourishing of the weak, the needy, the desperate, the desolate, and the hungry. Jesus is the grace-dispensing, mercy-giving, true high priest who is for the flourishing of the weak, the needy, the desperate, the desolate, and the hungry. And this is so brilliant. This is so brilliant. Notice what Jesus does by bringing 1 Samuel 21 and 22 before the, the mind's eye of everyone in the scene. He's painted a picture before them. He's basically saying, you know, you know something? What's happening between you and us and the grain and all the pointy fingers and the whack-a-mole? You, know you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of a story we are all familiar with. And what Jesus is about to do is brilliant and totally dangerous. See, Jesus has just rendered himself as who in the first Samuel 21 story? 
He's rendered himself as David, or as David and the high priest. Jesus has rendered himself as David and the high priest, a conflation of the two characters. Who has Jesus rendered his disciples as? Well, keep going. David's men, who are with the king eating the bread that the king is going to give them. By implication, who is Jesus comparing the Pharisees to in the story? Saul and Doeg. Jesus just says, hey, you know the story. It's like awful, full of all this grisly stuff and all this weird ethical stuff going on. You know the story. I'm like David and the priest. My disciples here, they're like David's followers. Oh, you're hunting us. That makes you Doeg and the Pharisees. Ouch. Right? He's just indicted them of proud power-holding, paranoia, unlawful hunting, and merciless hounding of the true anointed king, the true son of David. David. They are on the wrong side of Israel's history. They don't even know it. It was a brilliant and devastating critique of their hypocrisy and pride delivered through their own esteemed scripture. And so here we need to pause and take a step back. Who are we in this story? Who are we in this story? Are we those walking with the anointed king, eating of his daily bread of mercy since he is the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of rest? Are we Saul? holding on to our kingdoms of power and pride and opinion at all costs, willing to do violence against God's people to hold on to what we have. Maybe we're Doeg, coming to the sanctuary of God. Maybe coming in great religious appearance, but what is really going on in our hearts is politicking, social and religious maneuvering, seeking first our own kingdom, fueled by an idolatrous ambition. And when things look like they're going to bounce our way, we are willing to cut others down for whatever carrot is dangled in front of us in the moment. I wonder how often do we cut down others and cut others out of our lives because there's an opportunity right in front of us to grab what we want. How often are we doegs? Don't be a doeg. <laughs> how often have we, like the Pharisees, added to God's law of love, forgotten the mercy that God has shown us and so hunted down other believers? wielded our extra-biblical opinions and preferences, slashing at them with critiques and condemnation. Not born out of a heart of a love, but of a heart of self-righteousness and trying to prove something to other people about ourselves. Are we known for being a merciful people of ECC? Are we known for being a merciful people? And I don't mean a truth-compromising people, of course. I mean a merciful people ready to deliver the bread of life to others because it has first been given to us? Or do we have twitchy trigger fingers, right? Ready to slash at others with our self-righteousness? Or is there a heart of love that beats beneath it? See, this, this word mercy is the word uh, hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, which means like an intimate, loyal love. God has a hesed for his people, an intimate, loyal love, compassion in his guts that makes him want to draw us close. Is that us? Or are we known for harsh critique and unloving judgment? And again, this is not about compromising truth. This is not about calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. This is about a heart of love. Uh, remember, by the way, uh, the sanctuary is a scene where we meet Doeg, right? 
The beauty of mercy is dispensed in the sanctuary with David. But the sanctuary, man, the sanctuary can be a place of shadows and evil lurking. Shadows can be the darkest where the light should be the brightest. And how much evil has gone into the world because of what has happened in the sanctuaries supposedly that are operating in the name of Yahweh. So much. So much evil has happened in churches because the hearts of people are merciless, self-concerned, unloving, ambitious, Doegs, a bunch of doegs. You know, as we move towards a close, let's make this clear um, how this strange, grisly, um, confusing story in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 points us to Jesus. So again, remember, Doeg was a what? He's an Edomite. There's a long history of Edomites being the enemies of God's people. So real, real briefly, Jacob versus Esau. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Okay, there's enmity between Jacob and Esau. God's chosen one, Jacob, and Esau, the enemy. Now, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they're on their way, you know, through the wilderness, going up into the promised land. They go down to the, the Petra, you know, the area where Petra is in Jordan. That, that area down there is called Edom, and they're on their way in, and their brothers, or half-brothers, so to speak, the Edomites, don't give them safe passage. They say, we will not let you pass. We want to see you die. So again, enmity. They're at odds. When Israel is later attacked by the enemies of Babylon, the Edomites watch. They grab their popcorn and their six-packs, and they, they cheer as Babylon ravages their neighbors and brothers. Now remember, um, the birth of, of Jesus Who's the king when Jesus is born? Herod? Herod the not-so-great, right? Herod the Great. Uh, what does Herod the Great do when he knows his kingdom is threatened? Slaughters the children in the town of Bethlehem. Herod. Herod is a what? An Edomian. That means he's an Edomite. Watch these dots connect. Herod Antipas. He cuts... Um, off John the Baptist's head. Herod Agrippa I, he executes the Apostle James, Edomites versus the kingdom of God. So again now, watch this. The New Testament opens with the efforts of an Edomite, King Herod, right? Who rules over Judea and and Galilee, who is seeking to destroy the king who will be the deliverer of God's people. Do you see the parallel of David and Jesus? Let's run through a few, just a few. Both David and Jesus are anointed and hunted kings. I think that's clear from our passages. Both David and Jesus gather a ragtag crew of followers. I didn't read it. Read it this week. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2. It says all like, the down and out, all the outcasts, like, all come to David. Right? It's, it's the ragtag crew of, of the disciples, basically. Both David and Jesus can eat the bread of priests. Both David and Jesus arrive at a house of bread, which brings death to many. David, who's from Bethlehem, he comes to the house of bread, the, the, the sanctuary, and it causes all of these other deaths. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and because he is born there, the innocents are slaughtered. Both David and Jesus' story include a homicidal, paranoid king and a mass-murdering Edomite. What are the odds? Both David and Jesus take responsibility for others' sin. It's Saul and it's Doeg who did the killing, who sinned. But David says, 
It's my fault. I take this on me, and I'm going to do something about it. That's not to say Jesus has sinned, but Jesus takes upon himself our sin and does something about it. Both David and Jesus dispense mercy and protection to those who seek refuge in them. Abiathar comes to David, and David says, I got you. I will protect you. I will be your refuge and your safe space. And so it is with you if you come to Jesus. He's your refuge. He is your safe space. It doesn't matter where you run from or what kind of outcast you are, what, what kind of outlaw you are, or who's tailing you, who's chasing you. He is your safe space. So friends, again, there's so much to learn from 1 Samuel 21 and 22, and I'm going to need a lot, a lot more years of meditating on this and taking long walks and trying to figure out what is really going on here. But without equivocation, the main point is to point us to the true anointed king, the hunted one who didn't come to cut us down, but was cut down in our place so that he could dispense the mercy and grace that we needed in order to have eternal life. He lived the life that we couldn't live, right? He died the death of our Saul-like, Doeg-like, Pharisaical-like hearts deserved, and he dispensed mercy on us, giving his body as the bread of life because he was the ultimate priest who was struck down that we might be fed. That we as, as God's people might live in his shining presence like that bread basked in the, in the glow of that golden lamp in the temple. Saul's, Doeg's, and Pharisees we have all been them. Saul had no mercy. Doeg had no mercy. Pharisees showed no mercy. Don't be a Doeg. Remember the mercy Jesus, our priest, has shown us. Because Jesus took the sort of judgment that we deserve. So he could feed us the bread of life. And we can be merciful to others, not out of our own strength. But we can be merciful to others because God has first been merciful to us. So friends, let's feed on the mercy that Jesus gives. None of us deserves this feast of this, this bread of life that we are about to come to. But his love has hunted us down. His sacrificial love has brought us to life. And so let us grant mercy to one another. Let us be known as a merciful people. For God desires mercy and not a sacrifice. So let us go and learn what this means. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your grace and your goodness. Lord, we covered a lot of narrative today, which is just pregnant with, with truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would embed in the hearts and the minds of my brothers and sisters today the things that you know they need for their flourishing, for their sanctification. Minister to us today by the power of your Spirit. And we now come to this table, talking about bread and swords Lord, I pray we come to this table with a great appreciation for what you've done. You are our bread of life. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.